Well, welcome to NETS part six. Tonight we're going to be looking at growing up in the spirit. If you'll turn to Ephesians chapter four, we'll begin in 11, where it talks about the, the ministries which were given when Jesus ascended up on high. And those consist of apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers for the purpose of equipping or growing up the saints so that they can do the work of ministry and so that the body of Christ can be edified. And we have those functioning until we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And it says, for uh, the purpose of that, in other words, for the purpose of not being children any longer. The reason that we have the ministries, the reason that we equip the saints, the reason that we grow up the saints is so that we'll no longer be children, nepios, those neophytes, those young infants. It's good to be a child because that means we're born, but we can't stay there. And we should be growing up. That's our goal. Because if we're not growing up, then we're tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men, by the choice of men, rather than by the choice of God. However, in verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, we may grow up. By speaking the truth in love, we grow. We grow up in all things unto him who is the head, even Christ. Now I want to go back again, and I want to look at Adam. And I want to look at when God made Adam, made man, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now I want you to take note in verse 26. It was in God's heart, even before he made man, that the purpose would be that man would have dominion. And as soon as man was made and was given life, as man and woman was given the instructions of being fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth and have dominion over it. Part of multiplying and being fruitful was having dominion and exercising that to be in charge of the world. That doesn't mean to cut all the trees down, but what it does, it means to exercise God's will by your will. Now, you can stay there in Ephesians, but excuse me, in, in Genesis, but I'm going to go to Ephesians right now. If you want to turn to Genesis 2, you can. But in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16 through 18, it says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, 
may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height. Now those are terms that an architect would use in terms of describing a building, four dimensions. But I want to point out that these spiritual things that are given to us and spiritual things that are being explained to us bring us into a fourth dimension. Not just three dimensions that you see with your eyes in the world, but a fourth dimension. And four is biblically the number for the world and things of the world. Number four is the world number. There are four elements, earth, air, fire, and water. There are four directions, north, south, east, and west. Four seasons, spring, summer, fall, and winter. It's an earthly number, but it's not necessarily an evil number. It can be influenced by God, by man, or by evil. It's up to us to influence the elements, to influence the earth, to influence what happens on the earth, because we're supposed to take dominion on the earth. The only way to truly take dominion, though, is to have that fourth element. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being, or a living soul. The body of man was formed from the ground. The elements of our body are still made up of the elements of dirt. The body was formed, but there was no life in that at that moment until he breathed in the breath of life. He breathed in the spirit of man, and then that man became a living soul, a living being. The breath that we breathe is the sign that we have a, a spirit in us, a living spirit. The spirit of man, every human being that's alive has it, but it's corrupt unless it's born again. In verse 17, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not, or you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Now we covered this, and we talked about the death of man. But I want to look at it again, because there's more to it than I showed you. Now Adam was spirit, soul, and body. However, he also had the Spirit of God upon. That was the fourth dimension. That was what gave him a connection outside of the Spirit of man within him. It was the Holy Spirit. It was the glory of God. Now remember, God said to him, In the day you eat, you shall die. You shall surely die. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. The gift of God comes to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's eternal life. But the wages, the costs of sin, the payment for sin, is death. In Revelation 26, it says, Blessed and holy is he who is part, has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Those that take part in the first resurrection, well, if there's a first resurrection, there must be at least one other, or it would be just the resurrection. But it says the first resurrection. And it has power. The first resurrection gives us release from the second death. 
So we need to know what these two things are. The first resurrection is the resurrection of the just. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Those that are alive and remain shall meet him in the air. The non-believer, those that died without Christ, are not even affected by the first resurrection. In verse 14, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. At the end of days, death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the vision that John had. And so at that time was anyone whose name was not written in the book of life. There would be a second resurrection. They would be brought up for a final judgment based on the things which they did or neglected to do. And those people, all of them that were not found in the book of life, were cast into the lake of fire. That is the second death, the, mo the permanent death. It's eternal death. Now, when Adam sinned, very quickly, shortly after that, God came, found them, saw they were naked. They were not clothed in glory anymore. That spirit was gone. And so he said, who told you you were naked? And he made them tunics of skin. As you know, something had to die then for the skins to be supplied for them to be wearing those skins. And that was a sacrificial offering. Blood was shed immediately to atone for that sin. At that point in time, that death sentence was already in place. But Adam received a deferral of the death sentence by the sacrifice of the animals until the perfect sacrifice was secured. And the promise was given that that sacrifice would come. Now 2 Peter 3.8 again says that with the day with the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. In Genesis 5.5, Adam lived 930 years and then he died. In his physical body, he lived 930 years, but he died in that first day of the Lord, the first day. Immediately after he sinned, the spirit left him, the glory left him, and the death sentence was administered. But then the, the sentence was deferred because of the shedding of blood until there could be a perfect sacrifice. Now Jesus was the second Adam, the same as the first Adam was before the fall. In other words, he did not have sin in his bloodstream. He did not have sin in his background. He had no sin in his inheritance. As the first Adam, he had authority on earth. But even so, both Adam and Jesus, having authority on earth as sons of man, they still needed power to energize. Power comes from heaven. The spirit upon brings the power. The authority allows the power to be energized. Now, in John chapter 3, where we read about, you must be born again, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. 
We need to understand again that with the new birth, he's talking on the subject of flesh and spirit. We have to understand everything in that context in light of flesh and spirit. Jesus said, unless one is born of water, meaning flesh, and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. We first have to be born, and then we need to be born again. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. We must first, first be as sons of men before we can be sons of God. We need to be born, but then we also need to be born again, or we will not enter the kingdom of God. If we do not enter the kingdom of God, we will have no inheritance available to us. Now in Leviticus 17, 11, it says, For the life, or it's the word soul, for the soul of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. Same word. For it is the blood that makes atonement for your soul. The life of the flesh is in the blood, and the blood that's shed on the altar of sacrifice makes atonement for your life. For the lives of Israel... That blood sacrifice made atonement for them, gave them a deferred sentence of that death sentence. But knowing that there was going to be a perfect sacrifice that had to come. Had that perfect sacrifice not come, the, those sheep and goats who shed their blood would have meant nothing at that point. Because they, all they did was give the deferred sentence. The sentence still had to be carried out. There still had to be death. But because the perfect sacrifice did come, the perfect lamb did come, he did die for us. He was crucified. He did become a curse for us. Those that believe on him now have that as a sacrifice. We no longer need the blood of goats and of sheep to buy us time because he is presently available to all who will call upon his name. Now, Jesus said in John chapter 6, 53, that most assuredly, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Not will have, not will be promised, but has, presently has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. Meaning, if he dies with eternal life, then the body is going to get up at the first resurrection. At the resurrection of the just. He will raise that person up who has believed on the Lord Jesus. Who has eaten his flesh and drank of his blood. Meaning that we received his spirit. So therefore we have that new nature not the nature anymore of Adam, but that it's as if we had a blood transfusion received, in God's eyes, received pure bloodstream now. Even though we still have this in this body, in God's eyes, we have His Son dwelling in us, so in His eyes, we have our eternal life already, even though it's in these earthly bodies. We don't look forward to the eternal life, although we have the hope of eternal life in that it is future that we'll walk into it in our new bodies, but we already hold it in light of our possession. It is ours. We have eternal life. 
his spirit, soul, and body, meaning Adam's spirit, soul, and body, as well as the anointing upon every one of those parts of Adam received the death sentence. The spirit, the soul, the body, and that spirit or anointing that was upon him. The sentence of death was deferred by the mercy of the judge, the blood of animals, and the promise of the Redeemer. The physical body slept at 930 years. The spirit returned to the spiritual realm. The soul awaits the resurrection of the body when the final judgment will be declared. But the perfect relationship of the spirit upon was killed the instant of sin. These complete the first death. Jesus said about the devil, he was a murderer from the beginning. What did he murder? He killed Adam. And immediately Adam, his connection was killed. Immediately his body received judgment. His soul and his spirit received judgment. His body died and he gave up the ghost within that day of the Lord. He awaits judgment. If he believed on the Redeemer, then that judgment has already happened now. Happened at the cross. In John 14, 17, Jesus said, The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. He was speaking to his disciples and his apostles. The Spirit was with them, was upon them. But he said, he's going to be in you. Still speaking of the born-again experience, which was going to be available shortly. In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, it says, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Sealed up with the Holy Spirit, which is also the Holy Spirit of a promise. Who is the guarantee, and that word guarantee means the earnest, like the down payment on a house. It's the earnest money. It's the guarantee. That Holy Spirit is your guarantee of an inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. We're the purchased possession. He purchased us with His blood, but that purchasing process is still going on because there's still more to come. More people to come in. And in, until that time comes at the resurrection, when, we're, when our bodies are changed, we're still in process. We're still in that time period that was not prophesied of in the Old Testament, but hidden. So in a sense, we're in the exact time period of the processing of the Spirit coming and our bodies being changed. From our perspective, it's our entire life. From God's perspective, it's like a twinkling of an eye. In that it began and it's continuing until it's completed. But we are the body of Christ. So in a sense, it's, it's His body being transformed. But some parts of His body have not even been born yet in the physical sense. Elements of it. But we have, once we're saved, 
Once we've believed on the Lord Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit. Now that is our eternal life. What he said to those disciples, he is with you, but he will be in you. We now have him in us. What was future for them is present for us. What was a promise to the Old Testament believer that they would have eternal life is not a promise to us who have believed, but it's a present reality. But we have it as a down payment of an inheritance, which is extremely important to the Christian. The promise to us of an inheritance which we obtained with the Holy Spirit of Christ is a higher order than the Old Testament promise of everlasting life. The works required of the Old Testament believer were accounted for eternal life. The works required of the New Testament believer are accounted for eternal inheritance. They are very important, but they're not for eternal life, but in a sense they are for a salvation in that you're storing up treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't corrupt. You're, you're utilizing your eternal life wisely. You're not bearing it. You're not leaving it in neglect, but you're using it wisely and thereby you're coming into a position of receiving an inheritance that you would not be able to even be eligible for without the Spirit of Christ. However, being eligible for it and receiving it are not the same thing. It's a down payment, but the rest of the payment needs to be made. The Spirit in us is to be born again. The Spirit upon us is for service to God and to mankind. In the Old Testament, the Spirit came upon. He said to His disciples, the Spirit is upon you. He laid hands on them. He sent them out to serve. He gave them authority to cast out demons. It takes the Spirit of God to energize the authority and the power. So they, they went out and the Spirit was upon them. But he said, that Spirit will be in you. On the day of Pentecost, any man, woman, or child, functionally, around the globe, could then confess Jesus as Lord. This is why it's so important that we preach the Gospel, so they would know this. But could receive the Spirit of God at that point and receive eternal life. However, the Spirit upon is still very necessary. It's still there for service. Those disciples had the Spirit upon them for service, but they were lacking the eternal life. They were being faithful towards that end, hoping towards that end, keeping the law, etc. On the day that the Spirit was given and made available to us that would confess Jesus as Lord, we received our eternal life. However, we still need the Spirit to energize us so that we may be servants of God, so that we may be faithful to God for the gift which He's given us. We're no longer working towards receiving eternal life, but we're working towards affecting our eternal life. We have an effect on what form and function that eternal life will have in eternity. By helping, serving, we're saved unto good works. In John chapter 5, verse 25, most assuredly, Jesus said, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is 
In other words, the hour is coming, and now it's almost here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. The hour is coming, and now is. It's a figure of speech saying, it's just about time when those who are dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. In other words, they're going to hear the voice, and some are going to let it sink in. They're going to believe it. He can't be talking about the dead that are actually in graves, because dead don't hear in that sense. In John chapter 5, verse 28, he says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming. Now he didn't say, and now is. So he, this is still future. The hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. Now that's different. All who are in the graves are one day in the future going to hear his voice. However, he said in 25, the hour is coming and now is almost here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and some are going to hear and live. Here's a powerful truth. God considers all men dead until they believe on the Son of God and He raises them in Christ. So in verse 25, those dead that Jesus is speaking about are those that are walking around breathing. But they're dead, just as dead as Adam was on the day that he sinned. They have that death penalty already against them. They have that deferred sentence still awaiting them should they not receive the atonement, the perfect atonement, the perfect lamb, Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice and substitute. So he was saying they're dead and they're going to hear pretty soon the voice of the Son of God. They're going to hear it, some directly, and some many, many more through the body of Christ speaking on his behalf, the good news. Those that hear will live. Then he says in verse 28, there's those that are in graves. There's a day coming when they're going to hear. When are they going to hear? At the resurrection. When it's time to get up. When it's time for judgment. Time to see if their names are written in the book of life and those that are not in there are going to have the second death. But God considers every man, woman, and child that's born, that's breathing, that is born of the flesh, that is born of water, is dead in his eyes, just as dead as Adam, just as much in need of a, a tunic of skin, so, so to speak. However, there's something greater than that the Lord Jesus Christ and His blood. Once having received that, we're alive to God with the Spirit given to us and within us. Now, 1 Corinthians 15, 47, it says, The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. first man was Adam. The second is Jesus. Jesus was also made from the dust of the earth. His body was... But he died and was resurrected. So that body he still has. However, it's been changed into a spiritual body. He is now a life-giving spirit. Unlike Adam, whose body saw corruption. And that body is still awaiting the resurrection. 
In John chapter 1, verse 32, John bore witness of Jesus, saying, I saw the Spirit descending upon, from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. You see, Adam had the Spirit upon him. But when he sinned, that Spirit left. Because you can grieve the Holy Spirit. That connection was killed. That, that was gone. Jesus was born into a, uh, with, with a perfect bloodstream. With no sin nature. But Jesus did not have that connection from the start. Even John the Baptist did. It says John was the greatest ever born of woman. It says because he had the spirit upon him from his mother's womb. It doesn't say that about Jesus. The reason that John was greater than any before him wasn't because John did more miracles. wasn't because he was more eloquent. It was because of the spirit. Because it's what makes us great is spirit. And what makes us lacking is spirit. What makes us found wanting in the sight of God is spirit. Or lack of it. Jesus was born perfect with the perfect nature but without the spirit upon. But when he went to see John and was baptized in the Jordan, when he came up and his father gave the blessing to him and sent the gift of the Holy Spirit, that spirit came upon him like a dove. But that spirit was not in him, it was upon him. And just like Adam, Jesus could have sinned and lost that spirit. Just as Adam did. Because Jesus, as the second Adam, had to be tested in all points like we are. But because he was able to go through every testing, every trial, without sin, it says that spirit remained on him. He never grieved the Holy Spirit. He never sinned to the point that the spirit left him, which was available until he was resurrected. In which case, from that point on, it was a perfect eternal bond. But Jesus had to come. He had to be the second Adam. He had to fulfill the same things. He had to walk through the same things and more that Adam had walked through and that all the sons of men had walked through. Prove that it was possible and yet have his blood shed nevertheless so that he could atone for our sins and buy us back and give us. Then he gave us of his spirit now. So we have available to us as we believe in the Lord Jesus, our eternal life now, by our faithfulness now, as we retain that spirit upon us, then we are laying up treasures in heaven. We are putting aside what we need to so that we have an inheritance in, in that eternal life which we have already been given. The spirit remained upon him. This is a powerful truth. The Spirit remained upon, remains upon due to our obedience. It remains within due to Jesus' obedience. Because He was obedient, even to the death on the cross, never having sinned, never having given in to the temptation, even though He was tempted, even though as soon as He received the Spirit, He was led of that Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. And then he was tempted throughout the rest of his life, even to the time in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was crying out, not my will, but your will be done, Lord. And yet he still always did the Father's will. 
So that spirit remained upon him, even through the worst of anything that anyone's ever had to go through. And when he was raised from the dead, he gave us of that spirit, which was resurrected. We have that spirit within us because of his obedience. Now, because we have his spirit within us, Unlike those apostles whom he said to them, the Spirit is with you, but will be in you. Now we have the Spirit in us, and it can be with us. We have eternal life. By our obedience, the Spirit can be upon us for service. But we can grieve that Spirit, and it can be taken away. Jesus, it remained upon him by his obedience. You and I... It remains upon us by our obedience, but it remains within us because of his obedience. In Hebrews 5.8 it says, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience through the things which he suffered, or the things which he experienced. He was a son, but he had to learn to be obedient. You and I will need to learn to be obedient. 2 Corinthians 10.6 says, And being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. He learned obedience by the things that he went through. Because of his obedience, you and I have eternal life. The spirit within us cannot be taken. However, only by our obedience will we get to the place where then we are able then by our actions to take dominion over the devil, which is to punish disobedience. But only as we learn obedience to walk in that will we be put in a position of authority functioning that we can punish the enemy. That we can take authority. That we can crush the works of darkness. It's by our obedience that we grow into that place. By our obedience that we grow in the spirit. By our obedience that we retain that spirit for service. Now Saul was king of Israel, the first king, and he had the spirit upon him. From the time that he was anointed with oil by the prophet, the spirit came upon him shortly thereafter, and he even prophesied as a sign that he had that spirit, something he couldn't do without that spirit. He prophesied, and he had that spirit from that time until he sinned and sinned until he was disobedient until the point that God, he refused to repent for his sins and God actually took that spirit away from him, took the anointing away from him. He was still the anointed of God in that he had received the anointing, but the actual spiritual anointing had been taken from him. The spirit left him. There was a void. And in 1 Samuel 16, 14, it says, the spirit of the Lord departed from him, but a distressing spirit troubled him, took the place of that. Had Saul ever repented, would God have honored that repentance and given him the spirit back? I'm sure he would have, but Saul never did repent. Saul had authority, and he had power to operate in that authority because of the spirit. When the spirit was gone, he needed some power. This is a powerful truth. Authority without power to enforce its will is no authority. Only man and God have authority. 
But only Satan and God have supernatural power. The struggle is between whose power will be authorized by the authority of man. There was another man recorded in Scripture, Samson, who had the Spirit upon him for service. The Spirit was upon him in order that he might punish the enemies of God, to punish disobedience. He did that, but he was also disobedient. And he was disobedient to the point that that spirit actually left him. In Judges 16.20, it says this, he didn't even know when the spirit left him. But the results were cataclysmic, just as they were cataclysmic in Adam's case when the spirit left him. And he saw that he was naked and he had not the glory anymore. When Samson lost that power, he was already so blinded that he didn't even notice it was gone, but he noticed it quickly thereafter when the Philistines for the first time, the enemies of God, evil, overpowered him completely for the first time ever. That spirit had been given to him to serve God's people and to serve God. But in 1628, when they brought out Samson and they tormented him and, and made sport with him before the enemies of the true God, Samson did repent. As near as I know, he's the only man in Scripture that lost the spirit in the Old Testament that actually repented and regained it. And he said, strengthen me, Lord. Just this once. Now, he didn't have to say just this once. He could have said, strengthen me and let me keep going. But he had been through a lot, and that's what he prayed. Just this once, O God, and let me avenge myself upon the Philistines. And then you know how he asked the young man to show him where the pillars were that held up the entire temple. And he pressed on those pillars. And he said, let me die with the Philistines. And he did. But he had the anointing back. And the Spirit of God came on him. And when he pressed on those pillars, this time they went. Where he'd been in jail and prison, he'd been chained with a little chain and he couldn't break it. But now the entire pillars of the entire building, when he pressed on them, the whole temple came down. And the Bible says that the Philistines, the enemies of God that died with him were more than died in his entire life. In other words, God was able to do more in the last few seconds than Samson was able to do in his entire life. That's how tremendous God's forgiveness is. Samson sinned tremendously to the point that God's mercy finally came to an end and the spirit was removed. Had Samson died in that state, I can't say, but I would assume that his name would not be in the book of life. However, Samson asked to be strengthened by the Spirit again, and the Lord heard his prayer as he hears yours and mine. And Samson then, not only did he redeem himself, but he was able to do more in a few seconds than he did in, in, in his entire ministry life. Right from the start in Judges 14 and verse 4, it says that when Samson went out, he had a purpose. 
He was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. He sought an occasion to move against the enemies of God. That's why he had the spirit. That's why the angel came and spoke to Manoah and to his mother and explained to them what to do so that he would be in a position to receive that anointing, to receive that grace, to receive that spirit upon him that he could move in that particular power of God, that particular portion of who God is in order to punish all disobedience. His call was to seek to look for occasions against the enemies of God. We are called, according to 2 Corinthians 10, 6, to punish disobedience. But we must look for a place. But we must be holy and we must grow up. We must suffer things so that we can learn that obedience. Even as Jesus learned the obedience, that now we have eternal life, we must learn obedience so that we may manifest the power of God. So that we may manifest that nature of God that's placed upon us for service to look for an occasion against the, the kingdom of darkness without that spirit upon we won't be able to do anything against the kingdom of darkness although we have great potential every Christian has great potential but without that obedience and understanding coming to us of what it is and how that spirit works will have no manifested power, even though the potential is there. But our goal is not to just have the potential, but to be able to walk in that potential. How do we do that? By growing up in all things, by no longer being children. Every child has a potential, but even a child is no different than a servant when he is a child. He has to grow up into his airship. We have to grow up into the potential that Christ has given us. Now in Ephesians chapter 4, I think I'll start in 14 again, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things to him who is the head. Christ, from whom the whole body is joined and knit together. By what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, cause, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself. When we come together as joints, working together, we all grow, the entire body grows, and we all are edified, we are all built up. That's the will of the Lord. And I say this, Therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, in the vanity of their mind, having their understanding darkened. We need to have our understanding enlightened and being alienated from the life of God. He's writing this to Christians. He is saying, don't walk like the Gentiles. The Gentiles don't have the Spirit of God. And he's telling people who do have the Spirit of God not to walk like people who don't have it. Because they're alienated from the life of God. They're separated from it. Because of the ignorance that is in them. And because of the blindness of their heart. We're not to be ignorant anymore. 
who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness, but you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard of him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, put off your former lifestyle, don't live like the world lives. Don't act like the world acts. Don't struggle and spend your time trying to be like a worldly person, to look successful by worldly standards, to achieve success through attaining worldly things. But put it off and put off the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts. The lusts draw us into sin. But instead, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on the new man. This takes work. To put something on is work. To put something on, because it is work, can't be work for salvation in, in light of eternal life. It's work that we do after we have eternal life. It's work that we do to grow up. It's work that we do to punish disobedience. It's work that we do to be obedient. It's work that we do to please God. It's work that we do to attain an eternal inheritance, which we now have a promise of if we'll be faithful. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man. It takes effort to put on the new man. It's there in you. You have Christ in you. That's the new man. But you need to put him on. Your soul is still the same soul it was when you got saved. The moment after you get saved, you now have the Spirit of God in you. It's Christ in you. It's the hope of glory. If you had it, you wouldn't hope for it. It's still future, but it's potentially there. Now that we have the Spirit hoping for the glory, then we can, by our effort, by our faith, by our action, by our obedience, put on that new man. We take the spirit man and we put it on like those tunics that God made for Adam. Put it on our soul. That takes effort because our soul wants to squeeze out. Our soul wants to come out. Our old self wants to come out and do the things it used to do. It wants, it wants to come out and do the things that it by nature would do, by, fall, by its fallen nature. However, we, by our choice, by our effort, by our will, choose to obey and put that spirit over that soul and thereby that soul is being saved. The salvation of our soul. That can't even start until we have eternal life. But when we take that eternal life and begin to put it on the new man, then we are putting on literally the new man, which is Christ. We are being imitators of Christ. We are becoming fellow laborers with him. It, it says, to put on the new man, which was created literally like God in true righteousness and holiness. That new man was created like God. What was the promise that Satan brought to the woman? Back in Genesis 3, verse 5, he said, 
God knows that in a day you eat of that tree, your eyes are going to be open and you'll be like God. He promised her that if she would eat that, they would be like God. And it cost them their lives. But it was God's intention that by obedience that they would one day be like God. But you can't attain God's will by disobedience. In God's kingdom, you can't do good things by bad methods. In the king of the world, they say, the end justifies the means. But in the kingdom of God, the means are just as important because they are the end. And when they shortcutted because of a promise from a liar, then the murderer killed. However, when we received Jesus, we received something that was like God. Because we received Christ in us, that perfect spirit of God. The new man was created like God. That which they wanted, we have. Zechariah, there's a promise to the, the Jews, God's chosen people. In verse 12, excuse me, chapter 12 and beginning in verse 8. In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David. Those that are just barely struggling along, in that day they're going to be like David was. Prophet, priest, and king. Anointed one of God. A man after God's own heart. And the house of David shall be like God. Like the angel of the Lord before them. In that day, they are going to be like Adam tried to be, but couldn't do it in his own works. But in that day to come, in that promised time, after the Redeemer finished his work, God was going to make them like him with his nature. Verse 10, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. <laughs> the, the forgiveness and grace of God is so tremendous that even though and when this was written, it was future that the son was going to be crucified and that he was going to be pierced. And he was going to go through those sufferings so that they could be one day like God. And even then he prophesied to a disobedient people and said to them that in that day that the house of David, meaning those that sought the Lord, were going to receive forgiveness. And they would even repent. And break the curse which came upon Israel when they said, Crucify him and let his blood be upon our heads and, and our children's. And they took the curse upon the, the people, but God is going to turn the curse into a blessing. And he said that it, was, it would be future. The Apostle Paul spoke that in, in Romans 11 that there was a future time coming when God was going to turn back to Israel. Why? Because they were going to turn back to him. 
They were going to come back and they were going to repent. And then God was going to give them of his spirit again. In the meantime, it's the time for us to come to him and to receive that which is like God, created like God, placed within us. We presently have what they're still looking forward to as a people. We are created like God in our spirit now by obedience and faith. We are to imitate God. We have that likeness of God within us. As we imitate him, as we put on the new man, we begin to act like his kids. We can begin to manifest his glory, begin to manifest his authority in the earth and begin to be obedient and take that which is disobedient and punish it. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also love, has loved us and given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. We need to be children. But as we imitate God, we don't stay infants anymore. It takes effort to imitate your father. It takes effort to get up and walk when you're an infant because you're going to fall. But don't stay down. The righteous get back up. To imitate God, is that a big calling? It certainly is. Is it attainable to imitate him? Yes, it is. Are any of us perfect at this point? No. Are we being perfected? Yes, that's the purpose. Is that we would get up, that we would grow. That the things we would speak and the things we would do would grow us up into a habitation as we help build one another up in love. Hebrews 11.6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder. God is a rewarder and we must believe that. It takes faith to please him. If we're imitating our father, we want to please him. Our desire as a child of God is to please him. When Jesus went to the Jordan and came up out of the water, God spoke a blessing as a father speaks to his obedient son, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, and gave him that spirit for service. As we are pleasing to God, we receive that spirit also, which then energizes the actions that we want carried out. By obedience, we receive that blessing because we have sought him, we have imitated him, and we have our faith functioning in order to please him. And if we'll do that, he will reward us because we will be seeking him diligently. And he promises us that if we will seek him and be diligent at that, not waste time, not bury our talents, not sit around and wait, not think that we don't need to do anything because we've, we've already received our eternal life. But if we will be diligent in this life, he will reward us. Amen.